So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I just want to give a little background, first of all, of what we've been talking about. And just a little bit of background about David, David's life. David is the man that we know and know as from Sunday school and from reading of the Bible, that he was the shepherd boy that was the young man that was chosen to be king and killed Goliath. He was a man that was mightily used by God. And historically, in the history of Israel, uh, there has never been a king like David, and there probably will not be. Uh, David's life began 3,000 years ago. He was born 3,000 years ago, really in an amazing part of God's plan. And Pastor Tony was talking about God's plan. And what's really amazing about the plan of God is, is that we, when we are not in the plan of God, we are not satisfied. And like he said, we have a hunger for things, uh, a, a hunger for a certain type of lifestyle that, or relationships that we think are going to be fulfilling, that we think that we are needing. But really the only way that we can discover satisfaction is really how David sat, found satisfaction. And that was, that was in God and following after God in God's specific plan. And just a couple interesting things before we get into 1 Samuel 16, that David was the youngest son of a poor farmer in a very small part of Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem, remember, that's the same town that Jesus was born in. And actually, Jesus was called the son of David because Jesus is part of David's ancestry. When we look at the genealogy of Christ, we see some very interesting people in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we'll get into that in a minute. But David was really the smallest. He was the youngest of eight sons in the smallest town of, of Israel. David was really a young man who was not even respected by the members of his own family. And I want to just talk about how God chooses us and how God anoints us and how God leads us in his plan. And a lot of times people are, a lot of times we are looking for God's will. What is God's will for my life? Maybe if I move here, maybe if I get another job, maybe if I get into another relationship, maybe if I get married, maybe if I get divorced, maybe if this happens, maybe if this happens, I will be satisfied. But whenever we try to live our life without God, we are left trying to manage everything. Do you ever try to manage things in your own life? Do you ever try to keep control of six different pots of food cooking? That's what it's like living without God. It's just everything, something's going to boil over and something's going to be out of control. So David was a young man who was not respected by his own members of his, of his family. He was really living in a family of nobodies, yet by the grace of God, David became the greatest king. We also see that in Judges chapter 2, David was a, and Ruth chapter 4 verse 20, that David was a part of Jesus' genealogy. Now, when you look at the genealogy of Christ, and you may not hear this in a lot of churches today because, frankly, David the psalmist, David the shepherd boy, David the king would not be welcome to speak in a lot of churches today because his life was a life that was not really perfect. He was a man after God's own heart. He was used by God, but he made a lot of mistakes. 
And I said this last week, and I like this, that if I wrote the Bible, I would write it totally different. I would write it in such a way where everyone in the Bible looks perfect, they got their act together, and there's no problems in their life. But that's not the way God wrote the Bible. God took the risk of writing an account of sinners, frail people, imperfect people such, such as you and I, and the apostles and many men and women of God, people that were prone to failure. And God does not, he is not worried about taking that risk because God is not offering a program to you and I to better ourselves, to become amazingly perfect people without flaws. The grace and the love of God is that thing that transforms our life. And so in David's ancestors and in the ancestors of Christ, if you read it very carefully in Matthew chapter 1, there's a woman by the name of Rahab. How many remember who Rahab was in Judges chapter 2? How many remember who she was? She was a woman that was a prostitute in Jericho. And she was a woman that heard that God's army was coming to Jericho. And she said, she understood that God was with these army. She, under, she could see the hand of God in the army. And she, she took the spies that came into the city to spy out the city before the invasion. And she said, I know that God is with you. Come to my house. I will hide you there. That's amazing. And she, she actually winds up recognizing the hand of God in the work of God. And she becomes a believer in God. That's amazing. In her life. And she is used by God to deliver the entire city of Jericho over to the, Israel, the army of Israel. She had been saved out of a crazy life of sin and just destruction you know, when we talk about sin, when a church talks about sin, why is sin such a big thing? God is not looking for behavioral modification. God's not looking for us to um, do anything else but to believe on Him. Sin is so destructive because it destroys us. It just destroys us. Sin in the Bible means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark of what God's perfect plan is for you and I. Whenever you and I stop thinking in faith towards God and trusting God in our life, we're already missing the mark. And that's why, that's why we hate this, that, kind of, uh, that kind of thing. We don't condemn people because we ourselves are sinners saved by grace. We see that Rahab uh, married a man by the name of Salmon, and he became the mother of a man named Boaz in Ruth chapter 4, verse 20. Boaz, of course, remember our series on Ruth, became the husband of Ruth, and Ruth and Boaz were the great-grandfather and great-grandmother of David. David is listed in the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a little bit about David that I wanted to capitalize on. What's happening, though, at the time that David becomes king and that he's anointed king, there is already a king. There's already a king in Israel, and his name is Saul. And Saul, in Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, was a man that was given to Israel because Israel wanted to have a king like every other nation had. At that time, there was no, other, uh, there was no king in Israel, but all the nations around Israel had kings. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, Israel wanted to have a king like everyone else had. 
Israel wanted to be like the other nations that were around it. And so God gave them a king, but this was not a king after God's own heart. It was Saul was really a failure as a king. And I want to talk about Saul at another time and how Saul was the reason why Saul was disqualified to be king. David really is chosen by God, and we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, you can follow it on the screen or read it in your Bibles that you have with you. David is chosen. I want us to put, when as we talk about this series, I want us to put ourselves in David's place. Because David represents, as we said last week, a New Testament believer in the Old Testament. David is a greater grace believer. He's a believer that understands the grace of God in the Old Testament. David was chosen by God. And let's just read. I just want to read this through and just listen to me as I read this or read along with me. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Saul, Samuel here is, Samuel, remember, is the prophet that anointed Saul to be king, and now he's going to anoint David. Samuel was very sad that the man that he had invested time in and that he had anointed king was not doing good. And you know, that could happen to you and I. There are people that you and I could invest in in our lives, maybe even family members, that they, after a period of time, are not doing good. And it could be that it's very heartbreaking. Uh, how many of you have ever had that happen to you, where there was someone that you loved, you spent time and invested in, and then they either choose the wrong path or they break your heart because of their decisions. I know that that's happened to me. Here Samuel is in that place. Saul is now breaking Samuel's heart because of his disobedience and he's mourning. And God says to, to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for him understanding that I've rejected him to reign over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. And what does that mean? Horn was like a uh, was like a container that was either made from a horn of a sheep or from an ox. And it was like a container for liquid or oil. And oil here speaks of the anointing or the recognition of God. Like when we use that word today that someone's been anointed to be a king, that's what we're talking about. They have been approved or they have been, uh, they have been recognized. In the kingdom of God, it means that they have been enabled and that God has delegated and God has blessed this person with an anointing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, go take your horn and fill it with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul, the king, hears it, he will kill me. So we see that Saul is a jealous man. There's a lot more about Saul that we'll get into later. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. I will show you what you are to do. I will name who you are supposed to anoint. Let's stop there for a minute. Very important point. Samuel... And I'd love to do a series of messages on Samuel because I love Samuel is such an amazing man in the Old Testament. 
God told Samuel that go, take the sons of, and take Jesse, go and look at them, for I have anointed a king there. I have a king for you to anoint. But I'm not going to tell you who it is until you actually get there. And this is really an aspect of the plan of God, is that God's plan is gradually revealed to us in faith obedience. When we walk by faith in obedience to God's plan, God reveals more and more of his plan to us. It's not that God's going to reveal his entire plan to us as we sit in our couch in our living room, thinking about what does God want to do in my life. God requires us to get engaged, to step in, to become a part. And you know, sometimes people never discover the most amazing part of God's plan for their life because they never are... They never get a conviction from God about what their home church is. And I'm not preaching at people. I'm, not, I, I'm just that I don't know who, who feels what about. And I never talk about this. Some churches really harp on this. It's the first time I've ever said this. Is that if I don't discover what God's geographical will is for me, there's aspects of the plan of God that God's never going to be able to reveal to me because I've never taken the step into step, step one. Do you know what I'm saying? That there are some things that we need to settle in our hearts as a believer. Like, where am I being fed? Where is my home church? Where is my home body? And this is where God calls us. You know, we, we need to look at our life as something that I am being called by God. There is a calling in your life. There is a precise will. It's not you and I just floating around trying to figure things out. God has an awesome plan. And remember, His plan for you and I is based on His grace and on His goodness. And we're never going dis- to discover that peace and that joy until we understand and discover the perfect will of God. And so God's plan is gradually revealed to Samuel as he takes steps by faith, only step by step. And so... We see here that Samuel did in verse 4 what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Man, what a man of power, huh? He's going into town, and the elders or the leaders of the town or the authorities or the, the, the heads of state there in the town are trembling. They are afraid that Samuel is coming, and what is Samuel going to do? And so what happens is they said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. I I was reading this and I thought, Samuel, God just told Samuel to lie to these people. Isn't that interesting? The life of David here is filled with so many different controversies and seemingly scandals. And we see that, that, and I don't have time to talk about it this morning, and this is something we'll get into later in the series, but... God tells people to do some very interesting things in the life of David. Samuel said, I've come to sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he takes Jesse's family and his sons and he consecrates them. Remember that. He consecrates them. I want to make a point about that in a minute. So it was in verse 6. When they came and he looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is with him. He, they see Eli, Eliab or Eliab or however you want to say that name. This is the oldest of eight sons. 
And Jesse's now going to parade all of his sons in front of Samuel because Jesse, the proud dad, knows that one of his sons is going to be king. And so first, of course, he starts with the most oldest, the most developed, the most good-looking one. And when Samuel saw him, God speaks to him. And Samuel himself says, this surely is God's anointed, just by looking at him. But in verse 7, we see the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. And look at these words. We love these words. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Remember that verse, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the second half of the verse. People are very occupied with what they see. How many of you have ever had someone make a judgment or a um, comment on something that they have observed in your life but never understanding what's going on in your heart? This is what we call judging. And, you know, sometimes this could happen in a church or amongst believers that People judge each other by what they see, and they have no idea what's going on in the heart of that person. And this, is such, this can be such a crime, this can be such a sad thing that happens that the Bible tells us, do not judge people. Don't judge. Do not judge. There are some people that are living their own life really the way they want to live, and they are already under just a sense of, like, this is not right. Their own conscience is telling them this is not right. And... And they are just, and sometimes even just assuming that people are judging them. And they may be very sensitive to what people say. And, and that's another story. But many times we as human beings judge things by what we see. And we never take time and wait on the Lord to hear from God about what really is happening. And we call this wisdom. Wisdom is insight from God to see what's really happening behind the scenes. Uh, wisdom is something that comes by God by waiting on God. And Samuel's life represents what it means to wait on God. Samuel was not a man who rushed into making decisions. Saul was, and Saul made those mistakes. Samuel learned how to wait on the Lord right from the beginning of his life as a child in the temple of the Lord. God said to Samuel, God's man, and he says that to, to me as a pastor and to all of us, do not judge by the outward appearance, for, man, for God looks at the heart, man looks at the outward appearance. And so Samuel understands that Eliab is not the one. And you know what Eliab means in the Hebrew, in the original language? Because we know that in the Middle East and in ancient days, everybody's name had a meaning. When I was in Central Asia just a couple weeks ago, which is, you know, is a predominantly Muslim area, we were having a conference there with the church. Everybody that I met, their name had a meaning. And it was just fascinating. Every time I'd meet somebody, I'd ask them, what does your name mean? And they just had these fantastic names. Eliab's name meant God is Father. You know, you look at someone, and it could be that Everything about their life looks great from a religious perspective. They may glorify God as their father, and they may, they may really profess that. But God has refused Eliab. Why? Because later on, we see the heart of Eliab really is revealed. And Eliab is the oldest brother, despises David. 
Eliab had an issue with comparing himself with his other brothers. He despised his younger brother David. And that despite in Eliab's heart caused God to refuse him from being king. Then the second son walks by, and this is in verse 8. Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. So I'm trying to imagine what the scene looked like. Here's Samuel standing here, right, just standing. And then Jesse's dad is probably standing here. And maybe there were other, I don't know, it was just the other brothers. Maybe they're all lined up, I don't know. But he's standing there, and then Eliab, he says, okay, Eliab, come by. And it's like, I don't know, kind of imagine almost like a, not a fashion show, but some kind of a, you know, a display or some kind of presentation, you know. Maybe Eliab is trying to walk as cool as he can or <laughs> as strong as he can. He's got his best armor on, and he's got his sword, and, you know, who knows what's going through his mind. And Abinadab walks by, and... Um, God said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And what does Abinadab's name mean? It means father of pleasantness. You know, we have the guy who, who looks like he's very religious. God is my father. I'm, you know, I believe in God. I'm, he is my father. He's my dad. Nope, that's not the, God's not interested in the religious guy. The second guy comes, the father of pleasantness or the father of nobility, uh, Abinadab's name meant um, pleasantness. And you look at the guy and you think, wow, what a pleasant-looking man. I mean, you know, he'd be diplomatic. He would be a nice guy. He's got a great personality, maybe. I'm just kind of, kind of uh, speculating here a little bit. But God rejected that. God's not looking for pleasantness and uh, sincere personalities for a king. Then the next one is Shammah. And this is in verse 9. Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Shema means astonishment. You look at Shema, and the word astonishment in the Old Testament is used in the, in the sense of the way we would use the word shock and awe. Remember that in the Iraqi war? There was that shock and awe, you know, that surprise attack that just left everybody in astonishment. That was the idea of the strategy. When people saw Shema, they were just astonished. I don't know what it was about him, but they were like, wow, that's all they could say about this young man, Shema. He was astonishing to look at. You ever see, you ever see someone who's just dashing? He must have been like really great looking guy. But God said, I am not with that one. He is not the chosen one. And then the rest of the four brothers passed by. We don't even hear their names. They're not even in the list. And Samuel said to Jesse in verse 11, are all the young men here? Because none of them are really chosen by God. And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. It, it, it doesn't even say his name. Jesse doesn't, Jesse has such, like, he's like, he can't be talking about my youngest son. He's just a kid. He's in the pastures and he's watching sheep. And so Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for he will not, for we will not sit down until he comes here. We're just going to stand until he comes. And I like this, that so he sent and he brought David in. And you know, notice here, Jesse, I mean, Samuel does not have to sanctify David as he did the other brothers. Because, Je because the son of Jesse, David, was 
a man who practiced himself in the presence of God. He was living in God's presence. He was a man after God's own heart, and he was living in sanctification. And in verse 12, he sent and brought him. And look at the description of David. And this is really a description of a spirit-filled believer. This is a description of a person that really has the anointing of God on their life. He was ruddy. What does ruddy mean? How many know what that means, ruddy? Had like red cheeks. Remember those days when we had red cheeks as kids? I don't know. I don't remember other, I don't remember if I ever had those days, but he had just like you he had life in his face. His face was shining. The spirit-filled believer who understands how to abide in the presence of God and abide in the grace of God has a countenance that's speaking. Do you ever meet someone who just loves God and their face is shining? It's usually elderly people. That's, I mean, a lot of times, I don't know why that is, but they've lived so many years with God. He had bright eyes. He had bright eyes, eyes that just were piercing with the love of God. And he was good looking in the sense that he had a gracefulness about his life. Sometimes people ask me, can the devil read my minds? And I, I used to get that question a lot overseas when we were living overseas. Can the devil read my mind? Can he know what I'm thinking? And can he attack me based on reading my mind? And the answer to that is no. The devil cannot read your minds because he doesn't have access to your soul like God does. Uh, Satan cannot possess, he cannot possess a born-again believer because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's no way that a born-again believer can be possessed with the devil because the born-again believer's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul asked the question, can devils and God abide together? It's impossible. Can a devil, can Satan oppress and put pressure on a believer and really make his life miserable? Yes, he can if that believer is not hiding in the covering of God. And so David here is a man that is communicating the life of a spirit-filled believer. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. It's interesting that he says arise, because Samuel's already standing, isn't he? He's already standing. And God says to Samuel, Arise. And what that means is, is that I want you to step up. I want you to pick yourself up. I want you to get out of your... ...situations. I want you to arise in your heart and in your mind. I want you to, get, I want you to be quickened in Ephesians 4.23. I want you to step up and anoint him in the midst of his brothers. And this is in verse 13. And I'm going to close in a minute. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Uh, this is really amazing because God did not anoint David above his brothers. God anointed his, David in the midst of his brothers. When we are anointed by God, we are not anointed to be some king, high and mighty person. We are anointed by God in the midst of the body of Christ. We are no better than anybody else, but we have an anointing in our life. And I want to finish with this, that when God anointed David, this is the first time of three times that David was anointed. Three times. What does the anointing mean? It's very significant in the Bible. 
that when God anoints people, it's very significant. It means that when God comes into our lives, he first gives us his Holy Spirit. And that's not a separate experience. That happens at the point of salvation. And there's many verses that tell us that in Ephesians chapter 1, that we are sealed with the Spirit. Uh, when we believe on him, we at that point are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And David was anointed because we see David is in the plan of God tending the sheep and he had to be called in by Samuel to be anointed all the other brothers were there waiting when we are in the plan of God we don't have to be looking for anything else we are just satisfied where God has put us functioning in the anointing of where God has put us whether God has made us a husband or a wife or God has made us a mom or a dad or a grandparent or a single person we just function where God has placed us and really discover the anointing there. God anointed David because he was, anoint he was abiding in God's presence. That's the first time he anointed him. There's three anointings. The first anointing was that he was anointed king because he was abiding in God's presence. When we abide in God's presence and in God's promises, there's an anointing in our life. And you know what happens? David's older brother begins to despise him. You have God's presence in your life. And there are some times where you can find yourself in family situations where people may despise you. They may not appreciate you. They may not love you. And it's more than just family. Sometimes it can really be something that's a, uh, it could be spiritual warfare. It goes beyond our family relationships sometimes. The second reason, or the second time that David was anointed is later on in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and verse 11. He was anointed in Hebron. And this is an anointing that came because David was walking in the boldness of faith. David was walking in courage. When you and I take steps of faith in our life, there's an anointing in our life. There's a presence of God in our life. When we take steps of faith in the direction that God wants us to go in, by faith, we go, we go on a mission or we go out to minister to someone or we just pick up the phone and make a phone call. There's an anointing in that. And then the third anointing was in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which is an anointing that came from David understanding and functioning in spiritual warfare. And that warfare was in the body of Christ at Zion. So there's three types of an anointing that God anoints the believer Saul did not understand the anointing, and nor did he understand the fear of the Lord, and nor did he have a heart after God. What is really awesome about David's life is that David was chosen by God. And this cho choosing comes with the guarantee that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And I'm going to finish with this, that God never left David. If there's one thing that you remember from this message, I want you to remember this, Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. David said that. David said that there's always going to be two partners in my life. The goodness of God and the mercy of God. David was a man that was after God's heart. It's like owning two dogs and you're running down across the field and you look behind you and they're chasing you. And No matter how fast you run and where you go, 
they're going to follow you, you know, chase you because they want to just jump on you and lick you to death and play with you. And that's the way dogs are. And I don't want to, I don't want to degrade the mercy and the goodness of God by relating them to dogs. But really, they chase us. And that's what that word in the Hebrew means. It means to pursue relentlessly, to never give up. And no matter what happens in our life, to how far we fall, the lowest of hells we can fall into, the mercy and the goodness of God are going to follow us there. And it's going to pick us up, and it's going to get us out of the situation, and it's going to encourage us. Because you and I are the Lord. We are anointed by God. We are chosen by God. God loves us. And this is really the life of satisfaction that we can live in when we understand that the anointing of God goes with us because it's a miracle. And God did not choose David because he was good-looking or for any other reason. God chose him because God's anointing was on him. And God's anointing is with you, too, wherever you go this week. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, just for your anointing in our life, that you follow us with your goodness and your mercy, that you never leave us.